Good morning. Well, it's good to be back. Thank you, David, for the privilege and the honor. Uh, you guys were more important in my life than you know through those five years. How you nurtured us. How you allowed us to be your pastor. How you embraced my family. And uh, it's a joy to work with uh, David again and Case, Brad, Tanner. I'm good on the list. I love my CCO team that's here. Uh, I met Jonathan three years ago in, uh, up in Pittsburgh, and, and he told me about CCO, and I told him who to look out for at First Press. Oh, y'all didn't hear that, did you? Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, it's, it's a joy to be here. The opportunities you gave me back to City Reach and all that God did in those days, we want to give you a thanks to you and a praise to God for what happened in those days. I, I get emotional when I stand here for a couple of reasons because of that history, but also Connie and I have two daughters and they were both married in this sanctuary. I stood in this place and officiated their, their ceremony. And so I have to come in here early and kind of hopefully get it together, which I didn't very well, but that's beside the point. And David, by the way, it's not if they applaud before you preach, it's if they applaud after you preach. That's what you, that's what you have to look for. And, um, it, it is a joy to be here, and also thank you for your hospitality and your generosity towards CCO and our ministry with college students. If you would, stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We're in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 19. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, who he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea and Jerusalem and from the coast of Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and he healed them all. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you. You know, a lot of us see movies and we think, wow, it's a lot of work for an actor or actress to do that role. Just ask Austin Butler, who the 30-year-old actor played Elvis Presley in the recent movie, Elvis. Butler shut himself up from the rest of the world, desperate to surrender his life to this role. He said, basically, I put my life on hold for two years so I could absorb everything possible about the life of Elvis Presley. And when I read that, I thought, man, we're not doing very good as Christians, are we? To absorb everything we can to know who Jesus Christ is. To understand that person. Children don't often listen to us, but they often, without fail, imitate us. I took my grandsons to a drive, chip, and putt contest, and I looked around, and there were a bunch of little Ricky Fowlers. You know what I'm talking about? 
flat-billed hat, got the little P up here. You know, this if it's orange here, it's orange everywhere. And I thought, they're imitating this golfer. John said it this way, By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him then ought to walk in the same way in which he walked, which means I have to imitate him. I begin to embrace and embody the person of Jesus Christ so strongly that, that I walk the way he does. So on this Leadership Sunday, I've chosen this passage. And by the way, you're not here just to listen in while I talk to this group of people. It is my firm belief anyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ, anyone who is breathing, has a leadership role somewhere. And if you're a Christian, that leadership role is important no matter where you are, homework, school, play, whatever it is. So don't tune me out because you think I'm just speaking to the staff and the elders and the deacons. It's for all of us, including me. And a lot of this I have wrestled with over the last 17 years being a pastor in a university town, being in a very liberal situation where you have to fight for Christianity every day. And I want to commend you as a church for having the CCO ministry because I'm a firm believer it's time for us to change the directions of the universities in our state, in our communities, away from this liberalism back to the truth of Jesus Christ. And we have to do that one student at a time because we've lost, we lost direction when all of these wonderful schools that we can name of Harvard and Yale who were there to train preachers had mission drift and are way away from that. It's time to reclaim that, folks, and the only way we can do to make that tide turn in our whole society is begin in these schools. So I commend you for doing that. Here are the three things. I got off the track here a little bit. Stop the clock when I get off the track over there, okay? <laughs> we please. Here, here are a few things that we find in this scripture. Number one is spiritual leaders are to live in communion with the Father. Spiritual leaders are to be in a discipleship community. And spiritual leaders are to have compassion and live compassionate life for all people. That's where I'm going, so you can track it as we go along. Here we are. In that first verse, verse 12, it talks about Jesus prayed all night with the Father. We see that many times, especially in the Garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion. He was in the garden talking it over with Dad. He didn't really like it, but they got in agreement. And so in this, we have a union with the Father, and it has two pieces. One is our union with the Father is to understand the covenant relationship we have with God. Jeremiah said there's a new covenant coming. Jesus took the cup, and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, my blood. And when you become a Christian, you become a person of a covenant community where you understand you have responsibilities to God, to yourself, and to others to be in that, in that covenant. The new covenant also has something to do not with just relationship, but fellowship. And that is when one of the disciples in Luke 6 comes to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray. There's nothing else in the scriptures where we find the disciples said, Lord, teach us that. But to pray, that ought to tell us something about that relationship. We see this. Jesus prayed all night. He chose the 12 because there were probably 150 disciples at that time. He chose these 12 by the direction of the Holy Spirit and by God in his conversation with the Father to have this, the new apostles. When times got tough, he retreated back to the Father. When the press of the crowd got tough, when they wanted him to have the earthly kingdom, when they wanted him to take over Rome, when they wanted to persecute him, 
when they questioned what he did on Sunday and what he did with this group and he was hanging out with sinners, what did Jesus do? He retreated back to the Father. Let me illustrate it. Go back with me to the playground when you were a child. You go into chain link fence. They're a lot different today, so I'll age myself with this, okay? You look around, and there's all this equipment, and my favorite was the merry-go-round. It was so rusty, you should have had a tetanus shot to get on the thing. I'm telling you. We had two games. Everybody that we could, we'd get on it and see if we could still keep it moving. And the other one was we would choose an individual, put them on there. Everybody else would push those bars and swing that thing as fast as they could. And then we would step away, and that person would grab one of those bars and lean out as far as they could to see if they touched the ground. And when they got dizzy, what'd they do? No, they moved back to the center. That's the way it is. When our lives get pressed, when our lives get dizzy, when all of this stuff is coming, all of these things that come when we thought this new year would be different and we find these, these different grieving times that we face as a congregation, where do we go back to? We go back to the center. The other thing we learn about communion with the Father is when Jesus, when Jesus was being baptized and he comes up out of the water, and, and in that, we hear a voice from God that's recorded for us that is, he says, God says, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. What we learn about that is there's a time in our lives, and not just in baptism, but there'll be times in our lives on a regular basis, our communion with God is so strong, we listen to the voice of love who speaks to us. There's a lot of other voices out there, isn't there? Some of them are in your pocket. Some of them are on your wrist. Some of them are so distracting. We used to say you have to power down to power up, and there's some truth of that. We turn those things off so we can have communion with the Father. And you don't have to have Wi-Fi. You don't have to have Bluetooth. You just need to talk to him. And then you need to listen to him. So let me illustrate that. Richard Foster in his book, Prayer, is one of my favorite books on prayer. He tells a little story at the beginning of a dad who took his little boy to the mall and the little boy was just cantankerous the whole time. Didn't want to be there. Was crying, screaming, kicking. The dad just couldn't control him. And finally, the dad had this brilliant moment. He picked the little boy up, put him on his shoulder, and held him very close to him. And he started singing out of tune a little song that didn't rhyme, saying, I love you, my son. I'm so glad you're my son. I'm so glad we have this time together. I'm so glad that I could hold you like this. And he sang it all through the mall, and the little boy just calmed down. They finished their shopping. They got to the car. He put him in the car seat, and the little boy looked up to him and said, Sing it again, Daddy. Sing it again. And see, that's what we ought to hear from God or say to God. When life gets crazy and we're kicking and screaming like a little two-year-old at the mall, we need to have that communion with him where we're quiet, and we need to listen to his voice. I know there's times for lament. I get that. The Psalms are full of that. I know there are times to talk to God and ask him for things. I get that because I do that. But there's also times that we just need to be still and know that he is God. And that's the communion we need to have with the Father. When was the last time you said to the Father, sing it again, Daddy? Sing it again. Second, we find here that he spiritual leaders to live in the discipleship community. I want, to, I want to clarify that. That doesn't mean just worship. That means, it doesn't just mean Bible study. 
It means, a Bible, it means a Bible study group that is committed to discipling each other and discipling others and looking for others who need to be discipled. Spiritual reading is not just for information. It's for transformation. When Jeopardy comes on, my grandkids look at me and go, okay, Big Bob, this is your category. That's not why we go to Bible study, folks. We go to Bible study to be transformed. So when we look at spiritual leadership, we come to this time in the life of Jesus. He has these disciples that he has chosen to be apostles. And we, in my opinion, theologically are to be both. I am to be a learner of the gospel of Jesus Christ and be discipled. And I am to be an apostle, which is a sent one, to go to take the gospel to the world. It is both that we do. And I am not equipped to do that unless I come and get edified and equipped in the church to go out and evangelize. That's why the discipleship group has to be more than just a Bible study where we come together and we come to some decision and we soak in all this stuff and we become like a sponge. You get so wet, it's, it's useless. We have to wring that out and give it to somebody so we can get more and we can take out and give more back and forth. And so Jesus called his disciples and he calls us to go and make disciples of all nations and to teach them and to be obedient to his teaching. So what was he doing in those rest of those years with his disciples? He was doing spiritual formation. He was forming them into disciples and apostles to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And as the angel said to Jesus when he got to heaven, a little story I really like, they said, hey, Jesus, how did it go on earth? He said, it was good. I left it with 12 men. And the angel said, what if they don't do it? I have no other plan. Let me tell you what, folks, we're the 12 men right now. He has no other plan but in the church of Jesus Christ. And so with this spiritual formation, I want to give you a little definition. By the way, a lot of this stuff I wrestle with with college students because of learning and how to help them to see this in a world where they are constantly bombarded with other things. In my opinion, my definition, spiritual formation in the Christian tradition is a journey of transformation to the glory of Christ for the good of others. And what we begin with here, I'm going to parse it out, four parts. The journey is not a one and done. It's a marathon, not a sprint. And there's other formations in our life that we should understand it happens. If you're going to be a world-class athlete, you might need to do some cardio. You might need to do some strength. You might need to do some flexibility. You might need a good diet, and you might need some rest. That is physical formation. If you do educational formation, you're probably going to study the history, and then you're going to write a bunch of papers, and you're going to read some more, and then you're going to learn how to apply that somewhere. Educational formation. Spiritual formation includes these things, and there's more, but rest, silence, solitude, prayer, scripture, reading, fasting, and the Sabbath. Jesus did all those. Paul promises, he said, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. There's a promise you're going to get there. Don't mission drift. Growth for transformation. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing. When I was a kid, they had this big old machine. I mean, it looked like a boat anchor, this big old thing. And you put a quarter in it, and all this little plastic stuff came down, and then these two pieces came down and molded that together and made a dinosaur. Being conformed is pressure from the outside. That's the struggle we have in culture. That we're being pressed from the culture. Phillips put it this way in his translation. 
Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. And as Christians, we are not to worry about the molding. We are more concerned with the transformation, not the conforming to the world. We have to deal with that. But the transformation is from within. You hear that? It comes from within. The journey, the transformation, the glory of Christ. Paul put it this way in Colossians. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. We saw God when we saw Jesus in the scriptures, okay? Then Paul says this, And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. You hear that? To the glory of Christ, the image of Christ. And glory means that we take on those characteristics of that person. So we are on this journey. We're going to be transformed. We're going to come to the glory of Christ. And it's not just for us. It's for others. So this may be where you need to look at what you're doing in some of your small groups. My, you know, I can say this because I'm not here. I don't know what's going on. So got that one in, David. Okay. Uh, but so from this, what I'm saying to you is you may need to look at what's the outward focus of your Bible study group. Let me ask you this. When was the last time you had a list of people you prayed for who you knew did not know Jesus Christ as their Savior and need to be reconciled to God? And if you don't know, you need to find out. And when was the last time that you decided, I'm going to go sit down with them and I'm going to talk to them about their relationship with God? Edified and encouragement here, evangelism out there. And let me tell you what, pre-evangelism begins with prayer. Because pre-evangelism begins to help define pre-Christians become Christians. I don't like the word lost. I just like pre-Christians. And when you pray for people, your hearts change. So we're on this journey to be what? In a discipleship group that nurtures me, that I can nurture others, that I can have what Jesus did. He sent them out two by two to take the gospel. The third piece is that spiritual leaders live compassionate lives for all people. All right, can we, can we be honest here? I wrestled with this thing for a long time. And I'll tell you why. And if you agree with me, please affirm that you agree with me so I don't feel all alone up here by myself. There are some people I have a hard time being compassionate about. Is that a nervous laugh or is that... You understand what I'm saying? There are some. Compassion defined by Morrison, Nowen, and McNeil says, compassion means going directly to those people in places where suffering is most acute and building a home there. Sounds like somebody I met is my savior. But what we want to do sometimes, and I'm guilty, I'll just be honest with you here, we want to do flyby when it comes to compassion. We want to go say, yeah, I went over there and I worked a little bit and I moved on. But did we build a home there? And the greatest compassion we can have, folks, don't misunderstand me, is when we begin to pray for those who have the greatest cancer in the world, and that's the cancer of sin. Because they need the person of Jesus Christ. So I wrestled with this, and then I came back to an old teaching I learned at the seminary I went to nearby called the Reformed Theological Seminary. And I learned there that one of the things that we should do is we should interpret Scripture by Scripture. 
when you find scriptures you can't really understand, then go someplace else and see what it, what light it sheds on that. And so I went to John chapter 4, woman at the well, probably the longest dialogue we have with Jesus and anybody in the New Testament. Jesus, it says, had to go through Samaria, which was not the way they usually went. The GPS for Jews usually took them someplace else, not through Samaria. So he goes to Jacob's well. Great history there at Jacob's well. A woman comes to draw water alone, and Jesus asks her for a drink. John records this and says, The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And we all know there was this great divide between Samaritans and Jews, probably one of the, most big, the biggest racial divides in the world, the history of the world. And, of course, women were not highly revered in that society. So don't misinterpret what I'm saying about women today. Do you hear that? I'm taking the context of the Scripture. She defines herself immediately by a Samaritan and woman and defines him as a Jew. And that happens in our world all the time. I run across people who give me this image of themselves or this fake facade of themselves, and Jesus chose not to fall into that trap. He did not see her as just a Samaritan or a woman. He saw deeper into this lady, and he began to deal with her in the area where her greatest need was, and that was the need of relationship, relationship with the father, Obviously, she was not successful in her relationship in marriage. And obviously, she was not very successful with the other women of the city because women came to get water in the morning. So Jesus goes to that very thing. And this, is, this was a revelation I had with this. And if you don't agree with it, it's okay. You can tell me. Uh, but, but here's where I came out with this. Jesus did not venture into her self-proclaimed images but he began to see her through two very important lens. The lens of creation and the lens of redemption. And he looked at this woman and he saw her that she was a woman created in the image of God and that she was a woman who needed the redeeming, redeeming power of the blood of Jesus Christ himself. And folks, let me tell you, I am trying not to use any labels here because I'll lose you as soon as I use one. But if we do not look beyond the labels and the facades of people around us with those two lens, we will never get to the core of the needs of the people in our world. Let me remind you. Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them mankind. But then Paul tells, excuse me, John tells us, so what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called what? Children of God. Now, I live in a university town. I went to breakfast the other morning, and there were two guys sitting at a table over here. One was Jeremy Foley, and the other one was Scott Strickland, the former athletics director and the current athletics director. And I thought, oh, I wonder what these guys are talking about. I didn't have the nerve to say, are you talking about NIL? <laughs> but here's the original NIL. God has given us his name. God has made us in his image. God has given us his likeness. And when we 
when we begin to see things through the eyes of redemption and creation, we pass all those other things and get to the core of people's needs where is compassion at the, need, the deepest needs of someone, and we begin to build a home there and begin to build a relationship so we can bring these people to Jesus Christ and they will understand the reconciliation we can have with God. Os Guinness put it this way, if every human is in the image of God, then every violation of a human is an offense against God. It's really helping me to try to work on how I see people with compassion. And as a spiritual leader in this church or wherever you are, if you do not see people with the same eyes of compassion that Jesus Christ did, then you're not seeing them through the eyes of redemption and creation. And here's the illustration. I pulled my glasses out a while ago so I could read the scripture of this very small print Bible. And if I put these on, I read really good because my reading eye has a wrinkle on the retinas. It blurs everything, so I have to have these. And I, I enjoy using these, but sometimes the screw comes loose over here. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Some of you younger ones aren't there yet. Maybe your sunglasses, okay? And so, and so in there, I take my glasses off to fix it, and they go, I can't see the thing. Yeah, some of you are tracking it. And here we are, if we take the vision of creation and redemption off to fix our world, we can't see it correctly. And the other problem is I go to dinner and I forget my glasses and I have to ask Connie to read the menu. And she's reading the menu to me. My friend Pat reaches over and says, here, try my glasses. And guess what? Doesn't work. That's what happens in our society. We take the worldview of society and try to fix the ills of our world by taking somebody else's glasses that aren't going to work. But I need my lens of creation and redemption. Let's go a little deeper. What about us? What about the church of Jesus Christ? Are we doing that same thing across these pews? Are we seeing each other through the eyes of the image of God and the redemptive needs that we have in Jesus Christ? And if we're not, it's going to be a false and bad testimony to the world. And so it has to begin here that we begin to have the proper lens on to see each other past all of those little facades we put on. And I want to encourage you as a congregation to claim that passage that Jesus taught us that we are to love one another because by this will all men know that you are my what? Disciples. And when we begin as a church to look through those lens, we will begin to understand and practice what we need to do out there that's going to be even more difficult in some aspects. We begin by praying and we're the lens of creation and redemption, not of culture. And we begin to pray that we see the resurrection of Jesus Christ in lives that are in the darkness that we've sung about today and draw them into the light by the gift of the Holy Spirit for us to be the instrument to share that gospel with them because we've already prayed for them. and We've already begun to engage them in conversation. And then we begin to really get to the real issues. Where are you in a covenant relationship with God? That covenant word probably scaring them, but it's okay. It's good. 
A new command I give you that you love one another. So here we are. Let me ask you this question as I close. In Corinthians, Paul says that we, we are to be reconciled to God. Let me ask you this. Is there any place in your life that you don't need reconciliation? I would dare say that probably in almost all areas of our lives, we need some reconciliation. And then he says, not only are you reconciled to God, but I've given you the ministry of reconciliation, which means we are to go and reconcile people to God. The question is, threefold. If not me, who? If not now, when? And if not the gospel of reconciliation, what? Church of Jesus Christ, be in communion with the Father. Find that community of disciples that will help you. And never lose sight of the vision of creation and redemption in every person you see. To God alone be the glory. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we're just humans. We need you. So, Lord, by your grace, we claim not only salvation grace, we claim strengthening grace, sufficient grace, grace to be what you want us to be each day. And, Lord, may we be the grace of Jesus Christ in all people we face. For our growth, for your glory, and for their good. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.